Welcome to Fireside Chats with Erin, The Reboot. I'm Erin Gowerluck and I'm the president of the Canada Greens Council and your host. I've missed you. It's been about a year since we recorded our last episode and now that I am settled into my new role with the Canada Greens Council, I want to use this platform to explore grain sector priorities that reflect Council's work here at home and around the world. Together, we will explore issues and ideas with policymakers and industry influencers. And speaking of influencers, I am very excited to announce my first guest. She is someone who I had the pleasure of spending some time with overseas when I traveled to the International Grains Council Conference in London, England earlier this year. I remember my initial reaction to our first conversation, considering all of the challenges that our sector is facing in an increasingly complex and unpredictable global environment. We need bold and courageous leadership, and she's got that in spades. I'm pleased to be joined today by Emily Reese. Emily is the president and CEO of CropLife International, the global advocate for the plant science industry where she leads the organization's efforts in championing innovative technologies that enable farmers to sustainably increase productivity while managing the critical challenges facing our climate and the environment. An economist by training, Emily's expertise lies at the intersection of trade, climate, and agriculture. A Franco-British national, Emily comes from an extensive career in economic diplomacy, having served as trade attaché of France to Brazil and led Brazil's trade and investment agency's relations with the European Union. She began her career at the European Commission and specializes in tackling sanitary and phytosanitary barriers to trade. Prior to joining CropLife International, Emily was a senior fellow at the European Center for International Political Economy and served as a member of the United Kingdom's Trade and Agriculture Commission. A specialist in Latin America, she is fluent in English, French, Portuguese, and Spanish. Emily, thank you for stopping by for a fireside chat. Well, first, let me congratulate you, Erin, um, on your appointment and also for inviting me to today's podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you as my first guest because you really left an impression on me when we met in London not that long ago. I feel like we're on a similar trajectory in terms of our, our timing and our current positions. When we met at the conference in London, you'd been in your role now with CropLife for how long? I think it must have been a couple of weeks, maybe. Um, I, I was just arriving from Japan, if I'm not mistaken, um, but it was absolutely great. And I was still sort of meeting all the different stakeholders uh, and trying to figure out, you know, the new environment, just as you, right? Exactly. I'm going to get to that in a moment. I want to ask you a bit about some of the extensive travels that you've done and the conversations that you've been having with CropLife members across the world, around the world. But when I was first preparing for this interview, I was reflecting on the conversation that you and I had when we met for the first time. And I have to admit, it might surprise you, but I was worried that perhaps we didn't get off on the right foot initially, because there was a moment in our conversation where I feared that I had offended you. We were talking about tackling some of the challenges that our sector is facing, and in particular with respect to the European Union, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But I questioned whether or not crop life was the stakeholder that was best positioned to respond to a lot of the misinformation on which increasingly policies are being developed. 
And, and your response was revealing. You were unapologetic and very proud of the role that your members play in this space and, and quite willing, I have since learned, to lean into these very difficult conversations. So I want to open by asking, where does this energy and courage come from? Well, thank you very much, Erin. And please let me reassure you, you did not come off on a bad start. (laughs) As you rightly pointed out, I think, you know, I personally believe that conversations, particularly the difficult ones um, on the role of agriculture and climate mitigation and adaptation and the other challenges we face are vitally important. And, And those conversations, they're deeply personal to me. Um, I grew up on a citrus and avocado farm in Portugal, um, and I understand the challenges that farmers have to deal with on a, on a daily basis, from changing weather patterns to hydric stress in order to grow all of that nutritious food. And so courage, in a way, for me, is about having honest but uncomfortable conversations. And it's often with the people that you work with, the the people that you've been working with maybe all your professional life, that you're going to have the toughest conversations. And I think that that's what guides me. It's this moral courage that has to underpin those conversations. And I don't know if you remember what Robert Kennedy said once. He said that moral courage is a rarer commodity than bravery in battle or great intelligence. Yet it is the one essential, vital quality for those who seek to change a world that yields most painfully to change. And so that really, for me, is, is grounding. I believe, I believe that if we want to change the world, everyone operating in the global food system has to dedicate every effort to you know, the universally agreed goal of reversing the harms caused by climate change. And so those impacts, the impacts of climate shocks on food security, as well as greenhouse gas emissions from food production and food waste, they require global interventions and solutions. And so, you know, here we are um, entering into my role uh, at CropLife International, representing the R&D sector, the innovators of agriculture. And I feel that, you know, that's where a lot of the solutions lie to many of the challenges that, that, that we're facing. Um, and so, you know, innovation, is is effectively an opportunity to contribute to to people's lives, to nutrition, to health, to well-being, uh, to restore and protect nature, to to develop inclusive economies. And you know, I mean, I've um, I, I've seen a lot of this firsthand, and uh, and I'm always ready to 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 tackle these questions head on. And and yes, as you say. It's an absolute privilege to be at the helm of an organization that represents a sector that's on the cutting edge of all of this innovation that the world's going to need. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's not hard to be courageous when the stakes are that great. I appreciate that perspective. And and um, you were saying when we when we met, you were coming off the heels of, of quite Uh, a series of back-to-back meetings in a variety of countries around the world. I think you were out to meet with CropLife members um, shortly after you accepted the position. I think your travels, I know your travels took you to Canada because you joined us for Spring Dialogue Days. I think you were also in the U.S., South America, Asia, and parts of Europe. Have I missed anything? 
it was pretty extensive travel um and but what an opportunity i mean to see agriculture firsthand meet the stakeholders around the world mm-hmm. meet our members go to the headquarters meet leadership meet farmers i mean ultimately what a blessing right to have such an opportunity and you know one of the things that for me was really uh, important was to meet with our members and our members are the six largest agricultural r&d companies in the world but more importantly i got the opportunity to meet um the women and the men that are actually bringing working to bring the innovation and new understandings about the natural world uh, around us and plant science and working in the greenhouses. Um, I mean, that for me was just very special. And also to understand how now they're integrating, um, how sustainability is being integrated as part of discovery of innovation. Um, again, I'm I'm a greenhouse girl. I uh, I enjoy being in in greenhouses, um, seeing how this innovation is happening, and um, and and just see it unfold in real time. So it, it's just been very inspiring. Um, to meet also with the leadership, the visionaries, uh, their views on on what we can do to transform also at this critical juncture. And and I think that that's where we all recognize um, the urgency, right, of of delivering more tools, particularly technically advanced tools, um, how digital is going to revolutionize agriculture, and, and what farmers are going to need basically also to respond to a changing climate, right? So, Again, I was incredibly impressed to meet with our network, but also our members, and to see how everyone's really pushing the envelope out in in looking at how to develop technologies that deliver on that promise, right, of of agriculture to address food insecurity, adapt to uh, to climate change, uh, ensure farmer resilience, um, and do all of that while protecting the environment. So... Yes, uh, it was a lot of travel, uh, a lot to take in, also a lot of diversity from one country to another. Um, you know, looking at some of the innovations firsthand for a more resilient short stage of cro- uh, corn, for instance, uh, that gives more protection to extreme weather, uh, to reduce tillage in canola crops in Canada. Um, it was great to be in Canada with you all for the spring dialogues. I learned a lot. Uh, it's never... Uh, um, it's never sufficient. I'm, I can't wait to come back soon to learn more. Um, but once again, I think that the key point is you can see how the world is rethinking resilience and adaptation to climate change and the role of the agricultural sector in that. Thank you. Was there, you know, reflecting on some of those conversations, in addition to everything that you've just outlined, any any common themes or was there anything that that surprised you in the conversations or the experiences that you had during your travels? That I think one of the most surprising elements for me was how governments around the world are starting to see food security through a new angle. Mm. So looking at it not only from an affordability angle, we're seeing, for instance, new ministries of food security uh, pop up in the world. We're seeing countries that are high-income countries introduce food security policies, Um, but they are based on generally, I would say, two trends, one which is increasing production at home and securing access to uh, 
to commodities um, uh, through diversification of trade. And that evidently is where Canada is an important player um, in, in, in being that uh, uh, resilient and reliable trading partner for many countries around the world. But I would say those really were the, the, two, um, the two trends that I saw emerge from those, um, from those trips. And I'm going to ask you a bit more in a moment about that piece with respect to increasing acknowledgement, because I've been curious about um, how that conversation, if that conversation is evolving in any way with respect to the post-COVID reality and some of the challenges that we're facing with respect to growing food insecurity in a number of countries around the world and the impact that some of our environmental policies might have on our ability to feed an increasingly hungry global population. So we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, but I, I want to tap into your personal and professional experience, which is extensive, in particular living and working in the European Union. Um, they're an important market for a number of Canadian economies, but I think equally important, what we're starting to see, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the influence that the European Union is having on policies outside of the union itself in, in other jurisdictions and, and what that's going to mean in particular for Canadian businesses, Canadian farmers, and, and those in other countries around the world. So I'd like to know what, what you're hearing with respect to next steps for the Green Deal or the, the EU's farm to fork strategy, glyphosate renewal, and the latest on, on plant breeding innovation in the union. Well, there's a lot going on here in Brussels right now, and I'm happy to touch upon the the, the so-called Brussels effect, which is that global regulatory dimension. But I think that what we're seeing right now is a lot of movement actually in Brussels. Uh, we, um, we're at the tail end now of the summer. So it's about to get all back and active as the parliament comes back in uh, into seating this week. Um, but I would say that there's uh, big changes in the leadership around the Green Deal here in Brussels. So for instance, uh, uh, Franz Timmermans deciding to go uh, back uh, uh, into politics at home in the Netherlands uh, for the Green uh, and Socialists. Um, in that sense, it's created a new leadership in terms of the Green Deal with Commissioner Sekovic, uh, Vice President Sekovic uh, now uh, uh, stepping up into that role. Um, and what we're expecting here is perhaps as we reach the last year of this commission, this administration, before the parliamentary elections of next year in June, June 2024, is we're expecting there might be a, a wider turn now to enforcing the legislations that were adopted under the term, rather than looking to open new fronts of policy under the Green Deal. Uh, that seems to be the first indications of Vice President Sekovic. Um, Again, there's, uh, there's a, a lot that's happening and um, I can only commend the EU, you know, in its aim to make the climate, the continent climate neutral by 2030, um, boosting green uh, technology, circular economy. Um, and uh, in that sense, I think that there's a lot that's happening in terms of driving this green innovation and transformation in Europe, but in doing so, we also need to ensure that the European Union um, avoids, I would say, using the Green Deal for protectionist purposes. And I think that there has been in Brussels a lot of attention that's been made to this. Um, 
but we've also seen a realm of unilateral policies. Um, so these are the imposition of regulations that impose EU standards on trading partners emerge from Brussels during the COVID uh, period. Now, is it because diplomacy was at a standstill due to virtual uh, virtual negotiations? I don't know, Erin, but I'm, I'm sure that that is actually going to be something that needs to be addressed in this next year as a number of these um, unilateral policies are now uh, going to be introducing certain barriers to trade and trading partners might start feeling the effects of them. Um, and that has impact on the world, be it in terms of um, uh, uh, market access or, or just fair and equal treatment under uh, the, the international rule book, the, the rules that have been set by the World Trade Organization. So in that regard, you know, uh, this is where we see uh, quite a lot happening here in Brussels. Again, it's an election year, so uh, you can imagine that uh, uh, certain of the polarization that we have observed in the last year um, might be set to continue. I do hope uh, that we're able to have those honest, difficult conversations uh, in a way um, that does not necessarily become so polarized. Um, that, that we can talk about the science, that we can talk about the innovation, uh, that we can talk about the rule book and do so um, uh, by really uh, creating more opportunities, platforms for dialogue. Um, uh, that's always my wish uh, in, in, in this arena. Are you feeling optimistic about that? I think, you know, you look at with respect to the European Union, but also, you know, we're not far from an election here in Canada and in the United States. And increasingly, we're seeing in our respective jurisdictions this increased polarization. Are you feeling relatively optimistic that, that we can that we can change the narrative and we can have those constructive conversations? It's a good question. I'm I'm. I, as a European myself, um, I do hope mm -hmm. that, you know, I, I, I'm a very positive person in, in that regard. I do hope that, you know, the next elections uh, will create more vibrant conversations um, rather than end up in a polarized uh, uh, policy setting whereby it breaks down any opportunity to have conversations. Again, it, that's come back to the, the, the question of it's more courageous to have those difficult conversations than, than to be in opposition, right? So I'd like to see more of that. Now, is that uh, maybe an overly ambitious view of the next elections, perhaps? But uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to keep on believing. We'll wait and see. And, and it's what we do. It's what we're here for. So hopefully we'll have the opportunity to have those constructive conversations. I want to talk about the impact that these policies are having on, on, on farmers, in particular in the European Union, and, and your members' response to some of those challenges, certainly. But am I correct in my assessment that farmers are already or will soon be experiencing some production losses as a result of their inability to access some of these tools and and the response to that challenge, or at least the increasing concern that that will soon be the case, European policymakers appear to be pointing to alternatives, for example, like like biopesticides as a way to address um, some of those challenges. Well, more tools, you know, we can all agree are always welcome. Is this realistic in your view? 
Thanks, Aaron. And that's a great question. And I agree that more tools are always welcome and, and, and biopesticides are part of that toolbox and uh, integrated pest management practices is really what we want to see um, everywhere. Here, what we're seeing, though, is that there is a concern from farmers relating to drop in productivity. Those productivity levels are already challenged right now by those climate shocks that I was uh, uh, referring to earlier. We have had a very hot, hot summer here in south of Europe in particular um, that's going to be affecting the harvests of today. And that's where we're going to need new innovation. Um, and I think that this is also coming as part of that conversation. Uh, the European Commission is also proposing the new genome technique uh, uh, proposal. We're starting to see a new conversation emerge around innovations, but evidently farmers in Europe want to know whether with a projected uh, productivity drop, what's going to happen in terms of protecting them in their own markets from trade that's coming in from the rest of the world. And maybe that as a premise, it's a question, but maybe it's one question that should be addressed in a much larger setting because it can easily become a catch 22. Is it not that we should be looking at uh, all of these issues in a much, uh, um, I would say, more expanded way? Because from the moment that we start accepting the productivity drop, that we start accepting that we need more protectionism, then the knock-on knock effect can easily become that of requiring those unilateral actions that I mentioned before, the so-called mirror clauses. Well, in that case, everyone should have to produce under the same standards as we do. And that then can create unfair um, unequal um, uh, uh, rules to trade and, and also um, affect international trade in a way that doesn't play by the international trade book. So I think that that's the preoccupation that I see. We have an excellent team uh, in Europe, at CropLife Europe, that deal with the, 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 the daily uh, dossiers regarding uh, um, the sustainable use of pesticides. I, I'll leave that, it's an ongoing uh, dossier right now. What I look at is more the trade challenge and how it might impact the rest of the world as farmers request um, also more protection as they lose their access uh, to the toolbox. Mm, and I appreciate your background too informs that discussion for you as well. I, I, I want to touch on something that you mentioned at the top, because I've always been curious now about how the conversation specifically about sustainability has evolved in, in the post-COVID world. You talked about the conversations you were having with members and their experience with, with governments and those respective jurisdictions and how they're thinking a bit more about the impact that these increasingly geopolitical tensions, um, unprecedented levels of food security are, are having, um, certainly in, 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 in a number of, of, of countries around the world. So to what extent in your view, um, in, in Europe and in other countries, are policymakers considering the broader impact of these decisions, in particular, the impact that these environmental decisions are going to have on increasingly food insecure nations? So I think that from the point of view of Brussels, we're very we're in a very different uh, geographical setting. So I think I have to put that caveat. Ukraine is across the border. 
And in that regard, you know, my first thoughts when we're talking about um, about Ukraine is first and foremost with the Ukrainian farmers that are really doing their best job right now to plant and har- harvest under extreme hardship. Um, and also um, understanding that um, anything relating to the Black Grain Initiative has knock-on effects in terms of disruption in the markets in neighboring countries. And so if you're looking at it from uh, the policy perspective of Brussels, that does tend to be, I would say, the highlight um, in terms of how do you manage this? What will be the relationship to Ukraine and to its farming sector in the future? Um, And what is the access that should be afforded to Ukrainian agriculture today? In a way that is extremely pertinent and utterly understandable that that be the priority today. But it does mean that a number of the other uh, uh, questions might not be addressed in a first uh, sense in terms of what is the European Union's role also to feed the world in terms of maintaining productivity levels because there is also a duty uh, to provide uh, agricultural products to markets and to neighboring countries in particular, and I'm thinking particularly in the South Mediterranean basin. That debate is still um, not very present right now. I think that that's probably going to mature over the next year. Um, But I think that what we should look at uh, from an international perspective is how the the three C's, the the COVID conflict um, and climate are all coming together um, to create a global challenge, which makes us, which places us into a moment of having to build food resilience worldwide. Because food insecurity had been on the rise for six years prior to the conflict. And and what the conflict did was add to the economic vulnerabilities inflicted by the pandemic. And this on top of more and more unpredictable uh, um, climate shocks. So all of that creates a bit of a perfect storm in a way, and an opportunity for us to rethink also uh, our global trading system, our food systems to become more resilient, but also uh, with science at the center, with innovation, looking at digital, looking at a number of of tools that we can use now uh, in a uh, a geopolitical setting that is one of, of, of more fragmentation, but also much more challenging. And, and, and farmers need to keep on producing. Uh, we've got rising populations. We need to ensure that productivity increases. Also, you mentioning the environment, but you know, I spent a lot of time in Brazil. One of the things that we've learned from Brazil is that the best way of preserving the environment is to restore degraded pastures. When you restore a degraded pasture, you're not only putting part of that land into, produ- into pr- productive use, making best use of that land to produce food, 
but also then you create the opportunity to restore natural habitats, to restore native vegetation on that land that was degraded. So these are the kinds of optics I think that we should be considering when we're looking at protecting the environment, boosting productivity worldwide, because we do need to feed uh, 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 populations worldwide. And that's where the trade element comes in as a lever. It's an opportunity to make sure that we are able to compete on a level playing field amongst, amongst uh, nations, but we are also seeing a, a much uh, much more ease in the circulation of, of, of agricultural products worldwide and a moment where we're going to need it because climate shocks are going to intervene also um, in a way that means that countries are going to have to secure um, in extremis sometimes uh, access to commodities that they didn't need the day before, if I can put it that way. The, 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 this is what we're seeing worldwide. It creates tensions. We need to ensure that countries do not resolve into uh, export restrictions, export bans um, on agricultural products and tools. On the contrary, we need to ensure that trade is, keeps on flowing and that, that we are, are really working towards more harmonized systems um, that allow that, that free trade or regulated uh, uh, trade in products to continue. Agreed. And I, and I want to I bring this home um, for a second, Emily, and talk a bit about the opportunity for Canada, in your view, to play in in in, in informing these discussions, in influence some of these influencing some of these discussions and these policies um, that are coming out of Europe and and elsewhere. How best do we go about doing this? And and, and in particular, what is the role for ag sector stakeholders like the Canada Grains Council, a national association, what is our role in this conversation? What about the Canadian government? And further to that, what forums should we be leveraging for these conversations? I think about the WTO and the FAO and others, where are they having these conversations and where should we be positioning ourselves in an effort to inform and influence them? Well, first, before I say anything more on Canada, let me just say that I lived in Canada and I love Canada. And so it's always a pleasure for me to talk about Canada. Erin, um, Canada has always demonstrated its global leadership in, in promoting science-based policy, open, fair trade. And that's where we need Canada. The world needs Canada's voice. Um, Canada is not only, you know, as we know, a world leading exporter. Um, we rely on Canada, Canadian producers to help feed this ever growing population against the backdrop, once again, of these climatic shocks and trade fragmentation, regulatory fragmentation. Um, in that sense, I think that Canada has a uniquely aligned value chain. And I was very glad to have the opportunity to see that firsthand and therefore has such an opportunity to have a strong voice in international conversations. Uh, you mentioned the World Trade Organization and the FAO. Uh, I, I think also in some of the, the UN conversations, Canada is a respected broker of so many of those conversations. Um, and we appreciate that voice. I think the world appreciates that voice and the contribution of Canada. And so, in a way, we can take an example, um, and, and I take this opportunity also to congratulate the government of Canada on the, on the recently 
published uh, plant breeding innovation guidance um, and for being a leader in that space. Um, and, and I think that there, there are opportunities to also show uh, Canada as that global leader in innovation in productivity whilst protecting the environment and showing that how it can be done. And so with that, um, I think that uh, this science-driven um, uh, diplomacy that Canada can bring is also reliant on the, the, the whole value chain um, coming together and being supportive also of that diplomacy. Um, again, continued the strong efforts. Um, we, we see, you know, Canada speaking out, speaking out strong, always on these issues and, and also being, you know, a coordinator, um, a, a, a broker, political broker that has increasing geostrategic importance in agriculture. Um, a strong member of the Kearns Group uh, also comes to mind. Um, Canada is always there. And so um, uh, I, I really uh, would like to see that voice not only continue uh, uh, to play a strong, uh, a strong role um, and that the, the Canadian government be there through its diplomatic service, but also uh, with the stakeholders that have so much best practice to bring um, and, and uh, exchange with other parts of the world that want to know how Canada has managed to do this. So uh, on that note, I would say very, you know, kudos uh, to the Grains Council, uh, kudos also to the Canadian government, because uh, there's a lot happening there and we're supportive. And, and I know that there are a lot of stakeholders around the world that look to you as a leader in that, in that respect. I appreciate that inspiration. And that is what inspired me to want to be in this role with council, because I have always been most impressed with the way in which the council has been able to organize and mobilize and bring all of the stakeholders from across the sector together to work to drive uh, common policy. And uh, I, I like to what you said with respect to science-driven diplomacy. I think there's a real role for Canada there. So we will continue to encourage our federal government to, to promote the science-driven diplomacy. I appreciate your perspective on the European Union, but I don't want to limit our conversation. So maybe before we switch gears for a closing question, let's step back for a moment. I want to get your perspective on some of the threats and opportunities that you see for Canada as an exporter into other key regions for Canadian commodities like the Indo-Pacific and ASEAN countries. Yeah, I mean, Canada, once again, um, is plays a, a very key role in feeding uh, the Indo-Pacific and the ASEAN region, uh, where we, we do have some very substantial population increase. And, and, and there, there's always opportunities for diversification of trading partners. Uh, we've seen that also with uh, uh, with Canada playing key role with the CPTPP. I know that's a mouthful, but we know how important that is also to the strategy in that region, to trade diversification. Again, we're talking about uh, when we're talking about uh, the Indo-Pacific and ASEAN regions, we're talking about some of the fastest growing regions in the world. And um, I believe that that gives great opportunity for Canada to become an exporter of, of choice. Also, thanks to this trade diversification that's coming um, uh, to support that. Um, and so in that regard, I think there's a lot that can be done. Now, uh, again, Canada in its global role uh, can also um, ensure that, that 
and many of the, the UN conventions and its world leadership on climate policy also is leveraged in those conversations with that region. Um, and in that regard, we really want to make sure that there is a number of supportive government policies that are being put into place um, to, to deliver on the, the farm productivity in that region, but also that trade diversification that we mentioned earlier. So um, I understand that the that Canada is now opening a new agri-food office in Manila that will be promoting also agricultural trade in the region. I think that's great news. I mean, what we see in general is that when a country starts seeing the agricultural promotion part as part of their mission, things start to change on the ground because a lot of the um, a lot of the barriers to trade today do tend to be those non-tariff barriers, those sanitary and phytosanitary barriers, the, the, the infamous SPS, um, which are the nitty gritty and that require attention on a daily basis. And this is where having um, having, you know, agricultural attaches across your diplomatic networks, having presence in uh, promotion of, uh, of Canadian agriculture, working closely with the value chain does make a difference in terms of expanding the relationships, making sure that, again, you can have those conversations, be it uncomfortable or not, um, uh, to basically um, um, advance understandings across regions. Um, so in that regard, I think that's a, a, a huge um, a huge tool. Again, we know that this is a region, the ASEAN, the Asia Pacific region is becoming more and more uh, strategic across the globe. And, and Canada, once again, uh, will always be seen as a key player uh, in that region. And, and so much more can be done, again, to leverage Canada as that science-based partner reliable also in terms of uh, of being uh, able to trade. Uh, so I think that that's where we'll see a lot of the dynamics in, in that region of the world. And, and, I, and I wish uh, also uh, the Canadian stakeholders all the best in that regard. It always comes accompanied by a lot of work, uh, public-private uh, partnerships to actually get those results on the ground. I appreciate your perspective on, on that and everything we've talked about. This has been a wonderful conversation. I know one that our members are really going to appreciate. But before I let you go, I, I have a closing question. I, I have a personal interest in the topic of leadership, and I expect that that might be of interest to you as well. Uh, I studied the topic as part of my graduate degree, and I think that in an increasingly um, you know, as we face unprecedented challenges increasingly, we need unprecedented leadership. And so I want to close all of my conversations my, by asking my guests to weigh in on this topic. And my question specifically for you, Emily, on this, you've spent a significant portion of your first few weeks and months uh, traveling around the world, meeting with CropLife members and stakeholders in different jurisdictions. You are the head of an international organization, and this is not your first leadership posting. But reflecting for a moment on some of the travels that you've done more recently in your current role as the head of this international organization, meeting with stakeholders in different countries with different cultural norms, expectations, rules, both formal and informal, what has it been like you, especially as a woman, to adapt to some of these expectations while still being true to who you are, to the kind of leader that you want to be, and quite frankly, the kind of leader that we need you to be? 
That's a great question, Erin. I never seen myself as adapting. So maybe there's a that maybe that's a, a a a question in of itself, right? Um, I'm I'm I come from a very multicultural background. I've always felt very at ease um, in 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 trying to understand. I think cross culturally and 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 be that person in terms of uh, trying to understand where the other uh, the other person is coming from, but never necessarily in terms of having to adapt any of my behavior in that regard. Um, and I think that women in a way play a key role in that. Um, maybe it's because women are a force of nature to start off with um, um, and that we have the opportunity maybe to dive into these conversations um, with empathy. Um, I would say that the secret is um, to avoid being prescriptive before going into a conversation. So um, having the ability to listen and to listen with empathy is always a good way of starting uh, a conversation and, and, and being able to get to that spot where you can address some of the difficulties. Um, maybe that comes from a background in negotiations that tends to be my, my starting point, uh, but I would never see myself having to take away from something that I am to be present in that moment. Um, so um, I, I think that there's a lot that we can do in terms of a leadership role. There's a lot of responsibilities that we have as leaders also uh, to be an example, to be a force for good and to show to the young women out there that it's possible, Erin, that 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 we can all aspire to leadership and that there are uh, opportunities for women to grow um, and to take on uh, uh, organizations, large organizations, um, and do so with competence, do so with empathy, and do so by listening first. So those would be my, my key takeaways, but um, it, it's been an extraordinary trip. And I must say that along the way, I have met so many fantastic women and men um, around the world in all these different uh, cultures, uh, indulging in many food, uh, uh, food delicacies. And it, it, it really, you see that at the end of the day, as different as agriculture can be from one part of the world to the other, the soil, Food, agriculture, farming is something that connects humanity as a whole. And I find that very inspiring. So all of this has been tremendous. I've really enjoyed this conversation on so many levels, both with respect to your perspectives on some of the issues and the challenges that we're trying to address as a sector. I appreciate your inspiring comments on leadership. Thank you for that. But I also have to suggest, and this is slightly more trivial, that in addition to everything and the impression that you left with me when we first met in London, I have tremendous admiration for any woman who can travel the world and show up at a black tie event, fishing an evening gown out from the bottom of her carry-on and looking fantastic at the gala that evening. So I, I had tremendous respect to, for your ability to simply adapt and, and roll with it on every level. Thank you very much for this conversation. It's been fantastic, Emily.
Thank you so much, Erin. It's it's just a pleasure also to have opportunities to, to have these conversations with leaders such as you. And um, and I'm very much looking forward to being in Canada soon and, and to meeting uh, many of, of the great uh, contributors I know to uh, the Canadian Grains Council. So thank you again for this invitation. And there you have it, another fascinating and insightful discussion. We thank Emily for her time and perspective. I hope that you found this episode as thought-provoking and inspiring as I did. Remember, these fireside chats with Erin are monthly, so mark your calendars. We will be back in October with another great conversation. You can connect with us through Twitter or X, perhaps, as it's called now, at canadagreencouncil.ca, that's CDA. Grain Council to stay up to date on all of the work that we're doing. Stay connected with us for more engaging conversations that delve into the heart of the grain industry. You can catch us on your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. Just search for Fireside Chats with Aaron and hit the subscribe button to never miss an episode. Until next time.